HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. It is my new time slot, 2 o'clock. This is Katie Kiefer, your host for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. This is the Heritage Radio Network, as you all know. Um, we're going to be talking, uh, this is part one of a two-part series on the aftermath of Hurricane Florence on agricultural communities in North Carolina. And today we're going to start with um, with Charles Bethay, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine, and he has also contributed extensively to Outside, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and others. Um, and my other guest is Rick Dove, who has been a part of the Waterkeeper movement since 1993. He's got a nice long bio, and I'm going to read most of it because it's really cool. Um, he was one of the founding members of the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is a global uh, institution now, and served on its first board of directors. As the Noose River Keeper, Rick pioneered the use of aircraft in documenting sources of pollution. We're going to talk about that. Um, and during the 1990s, uh, his advocacy on behalf of the Noose River pertaining to its horrific fish kills and human health impacts resulting from the deadly vampire organism Fiesteria gained worldwide attention. Major for reforms in pollution practices throughout the Noose watershed resulted as uh, from Rick's efforts. And as a photojournalist, his photographs and videos have appeared in countless media reports and documentaries throughout the world. He has been featured in a number of important books, including Animal Factory and The Waters Turned to Blood, This Moment on Earth, Crimes Against Nature, and Righteous Pork Chop, one of my personal favorites. Prior to joining the Waterkeeper movement, Rick, a licensed attorney, served as a United States Marine, and after 25 years and serving twice in Vietnam, he retired as a colonel and a military judge. Thanks so much, Rick, for joining us. Um, and you do have a fantastic uh, biography. It's the kind that makes me, anyway, feel really small and insignificant. Um <laughs> Um, so Waterkeeper is now a global uh, institution, isn't that right? 
That's correct, and and it's it's great being with you today. By the way, well, thank you so much. Um, so, guys, uh, Charles, I'm going to start with you actually because mm-hmm. because first of all, you haven't been doing this for a really long time. Secondly, you're kind of like a lay person. I myself am deeply steeped in the ways of the meat industry, um, as my audience knows. Um, but uh, you were you were you're this you're kind of new to this rodeo, right? So yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I can tell, you may be the only mainstream media, uh, you know, mainstream journalist to actually have extensively covered what happened to the animal agricultural uh, community during the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. Am I right in that? Like, I, well, I didn't see I, any other ma- outside of North Carolina. I mean, I didn't see any um, other national outlets. I think, you know, Rick, Rick has done some interviews with a number of national publications, but I think I was one of the first that he spoke to. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I was, I came to the story early and uh, hopefully sort of paved the way for others to follow. Oh, I certainly hope so. I mean, you wrote four stories, um, some before and some after. Um, I think that's right, right? Did you write more than four stories about this? Yeah, four, four thus far. And right. I, I may return to it mm-hmm. as the impacts become more evident as time passes. Well, that's what I want to ask you is like, um, well, I wanted to ask if you had been following up with the locals who's, you know, who live within sort of the, the, the perimeter, the communities where lagoons either breached or overflowed. And we're going to ask Rick to describe the difference between that in just a second. But um, have you been talking to those communities where they are literally, they have been inundated with hog, uh, untreated hog sewage? Well, I uh, I wrote about one woman that Rick actually introduced me to named Elsie Herring. Mm -hmm. And it it may be an overstatement to say that her property was inundated with with waste, but she certainly had um, waste discharge come close to the vicinity of her property. She could smell it, um, and, and it was very disturbing. I've only touched base with her by text, heard that things are improving, but it's still a, a pretty uh, difficult living situation for her. And it's been that way for decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is hardly the first time, no doubt, that uh, she's experienced yeah. this kind of flooding. Now, Rick, you were starting to tell me something before we started the show about the difference. I was mentioning that somebody that I had interviewed for the second part of the series, um, had said that only three lagoons breached. And you were making the point that that's kind of industry speak for, you know, basically blowing smoke. Um, well, what's the difference between, you know, overflowing and breaching? Well, there is a uh, little, little difference, really. It's, uh, they say that breaching lagoons are, are ones that break through the the bank of the lagoon, the wall, and discharges uh, their, their feces and urine to the waterways. Yeah. Of course, that's true. But they also submerge. The industry likes to refer to that as overtopping, where <laughs> it's kind of like uh, putting whipped cream on a dessert. I mean, it's, <laughs> they, they submerge is what they do. Yeah. And between submersion and breaching, there is very, very little difference. Uh, when a lagoon breaches, sometimes it only breaches a few feet and discharges some of the waste from the lagoon. Right. Uh, other times it'll breach all the way to the bottom and spill the entire contents. Yes. On submersion, they actually go underwater 
And as the floodwaters subside, they actually suck the contents out and it goes downriver. So one way or the other, they're discharging huge amounts of feces and urine to the waterways of North Carolina. Have you been able to measure that in the aftermath of Florence, or are you basing that on, uh, on you know, previous experiences? No, I actually have been in the air. I flew some 30 hours myself uh, over eastern North Carolina uh, right after the hurricane uh, left the area. And I was only one of about four people flying. We had two airplanes in the air every day for uh-huh. as much as 10 hours a day for almost a week. Wow. So we have extensive documentation of what happened out there. Uh-huh. And um, Charles, you went up in the plane with uh-huh. Rick. What, what was it like for you to see that? Had you ever seen uh, anything it, like that? No, it was nauseating. <laughs> um, both the plane ride in the small bumpy plane, but also the <laughs> smell, uh, which Rick told me was not even close to as bad as it, it can be, but I, I caught a few whiffs that were yeah. uh, unappealing to say the least. Yeah, but from above you could see you could see two different colors in the lagoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rick explained, pink is the, the sort of Pepto Bismol pink is the normal color um, caused by the bacteria breakdown of the waste. Right, and uh, the sort of the bluish river color is indicative of a submerged lagoon. Oh wow! How interesting. Yeah, I've never seen that. I've obviously seen the pink ones. I've never been to a yeah. hog uh, CAFO myself. I've been to other forms of concentrated area feeding operation, but I have never been to a pig one. Um, but I do know what the smell of pig shit is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I also know that it is chock-a-block with um, volatile organic compounds and that the smell makes your eyes burn and your nose curl up and die. Isn't that right, Rick? Uh, yes, that's true. Even <laughs> under the best of times, yeah. these factory farms in North Carolina discharge huge amounts of waste to the waterways. They do? They're all regulated as zero-discharge systems, but that's ridiculous because we see their waste going into ditches that connect to rivers and streams. Sometimes mm-hmm. we see them spraying directly into rivers and streams and wetlands. Uh, these are under the best of conditions. But when these floodwaters come through and they flood the waterways of North Carolina, there are many, many of these swine and poultry facilities located along the river's edge. Yes. And when the river goes over its banks, it goes into these facilities and washes the contents from the buildings, which are confinement buildings. Yes. And from many, many lagoons. And this happened all during Florence. And I would say that Florence was a true disaster in North Carolina. Yeah. And the industry and the Department of Agriculture of North Carolina are way underestimating the impacts. Well, I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because um, I found the, the numbers um, of supposedly dead animals uh, really kind of eyebrow raising um, in a skeptical way. Uh, maybe not the chicken so much, but they, they claim that only 5,500 hogs were killed which implies that they managed to move literally millions of animals in the week or two weeks before Florence hit. And I, I wondered if that was if you felt like that was an accurate number. And then I, I read that uh, the most recent uh, numbers for poultry are around 3.4 3. million birds. 
And I was asking the, you know, somebody from the Consumer Protection Department of whatever, whatever he said his name was, whatever his assistant commissioner of agriculture for consumer protection. And he was saying that they're going to um, build these windrows with, with compost and compost all of those dead animals. How, how do you feel about that solution that they're offering? Well, first of all, there's a lot to respond to here. Yes. The <laughs> Department of Agriculture in North Carolina is made basically an agent of the industry. Yeah. And I don't have any confidence in what they say about what's happened out there. I've been flying these hurricanes, and I've been flying over these swine and poultry facilities for 25 years. And I've spent more than 3,000 hours in the air observing wow. what they do down there. Yeah. And what we get from the Department of Agriculture and the industry doesn't match what I see from the air over all these years. Right. In eastern North Carolina, the state is reporting now that there were approximately almost 2,000 incidences which uh, were impacts regarding the flood. And of that, 41 lagoons were flooded in one way or another, approximately 38 submerged. And that means either breached or discharged. <laughs> mm -hmm. Another 47 had between zero and three inches of freeboard left in them as a result of the floods, which floodwaters, which means they came very close to going over their own banks. Uh, and we don't have a full report yet on poultry. Right. But I can tell you this: when I was looking down at those confinement buildings with poultry, with with uh, chickens and turkeys. I could see the waste from these animals actually streaming out of the buildings and running downstream. Mm -hmm. I've seen lagoons that are completely busted loose with all their contents gone. Two lagoons in particular mm -hmm. are estimated to have discharged 7 million gallons of raw animal waste to yeah. the rivers. Nice. It was a true disaster out there. But yeah. the industry and the state always put the, the best light on it, and um, I think that's unfortunate. Well, I, there are so many uh, issues around that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I tried to drill down on with this guy, I don't want to talk about him too much because people can listen to that interview, but but I, I was just, um, you know, like the fact that the, the contract farmers, of course, have no sort of real crop insurance for these, you know, and, and, they're, and they are completely stuck holding the bag, as it were, of, you know, all of this waste, uh, whether it's dead animals or whether it's, you know, poultry litter or whether it's hog lagoons. And that's, to me, something that is so fundamentally wrong about the industry in general. Um, but I want to um, I want to sort of go on and talk a little bit about um, fee the role of FEMA and you know, how, how do you see, given what you've just said about the Department of Agriculture um, and their attitudes towards the industry, the animal agricultural industry, how, how do you see FEMA playing out here? How do you see the state uh, dealing with some of the impacts of these, you know, enormous um, toxic substances that are, are flowing into the waterways on a regular basis, essentially? Yes, I, I, I can't be very specific about what FEMA does because I just don't know that information. But I do know this. The government oftentimes comes in and with taxpayer dollars to rescue uh, this industry. Yeah. How much of it actually gets down to the contract grower, I don't know. But I do know that the integrator, uh, in this case, the WH Group out of China, which owns most all the hogs in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, that uh, they are a very profitable corporation and have plenty of resources to take care of both themselves and the contract growers. 
So I don't see why tax dollars would be poured into any rescuer. I think uh, WH Group and who who owns Smithfield Foods yes. should come to the rescue of these contract growers. Uh, well, of course, I think so too, and I bet a lot of those uh, contract farmers feel that way too. But I'm 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 pretty sure it's not going to happen, because um, <laughs> that's just not the nature of the industry, is it, Rick? That's just not how they roll. Um, no, it's not. It's all for themselves. Yeah. And um, you know, at one time Smithfield, which was an American corporation, traded publicly. I don't believe it's traded publicly anymore. No, it's at least not. Was an American corporation, but. But now we have separation uh, by it being owned by a China-based organization. So I don't see any help coming from that group, even though they've got the resources. Right. Um, Charles, did you, did you get any response from the hog industry uh, regarding the mm-hmm. ongoing issues of managing hog waste? Um, especially yeah, in the light talk- of those recent lawsuits that they lost, Murphy Brown, the, you know, the several... Yeah. Yeah. So what did what did Which you find contesting. out? Yeah, of course. Um, contesting those verdicts, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I talked to their director of renewables, um, who told me that the study that they commissioned with the help of NC State in two thousand in the year two thousand, nearly two decades ago, yeah. to look into more effective uh, waste disposal technologies to replace the the lagoon system that seems so antiquated and dangerous. Uh, that they weren't able to discover through that process any, quote, economically feasible uh, replacements for that system. Right. Uh, and, and they also added that they thought the Waste Lagoon system actually performed just fine during Florence, um, <laughs> or at least as well as it could have, <laughs> that this was a thousand-year storm event and, you know, what more could they have done, which, you know, I, I just find that strains the, the limits of credulity oh uh, yeah absolutely that's that's corporate speak for we don't give yeah. a shit yeah yeah um, yeah it's <laughs> shit exactly <laughs> we can say that because this is a podcast hearst ranch is a proud sponsor of the heritage radio network the Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words... I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Rick, I wanted to ask you about... um you know, you've you've spent so many years documenting the presence of CAFOs, and I, I happen to know from uh, inter- many interviews that I've conducted uh, on this on this show um, that the number of CAFOs in this country actually is not documented. That in fact, there's no registration, really, no great registration in the sky that tells us how many con- concentrated area feeding operations there are. But you have, uh, you have in fact documented the ones that exist in North Carolina to a great extent, along with the Environmental Working Group. And you guys created a map. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about that map 
and how that helped you sort of predict what was going to happen in the aftermath of this hurricane. Yes, I will. I'd be happy to do that. I have flown every after every hurricane in North Carolina since 1993, but with Matthew, which hit uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, we, the Waterkeeper and Environmental Working Group, created a map that's on the Waterkeeper website. That's waterkeeper.org. And you can go to the Pure Farms Pure Water campaign and find that map. And what that map will show you are little dots that go all across eastern North Carolina. And you can actually keep clicking on each dock and dot, and it will take you to each uh, uh, factory farm, whether it be poultry or whether it be swine. And it'll show you pictures of that facility. It'll show you who owns it, how many hogs, how many uh, chickens and turkeys that are there. It's very interactive, and it's very revealing as to what's in eastern North Carolina regarding these farms. And then after Hurricane Florence, we created a map that showed where all the major flooding occurred, and you can actually see how that overlaps Mm -hmm. the previous map that I spoke about. And by this Friday, we'll have another interactive map up that shows the... uh, all the results from Hurricane Florence. Wow, that's that's a that a, a mighty effort indeed. I, that that should be a subject of one of your articles, Charles. <laughs> because uh, it, it really, very nobody, well, maybe nobody else has done that. That doesn't exist anywhere else. And and the other state that could really profit from that is Iowa and maybe also Missouri, right? Because those those are the three big hog producing states, as far as I'm concerned. But you can probably tell me more than that, more about that, Rick. Um, you guys, what what do you think the recent uh, you know judgments against Smithfield uh, for nuisance odors and are are people in I guess I'm, I'm making this up now, but are people in the state starting? I mean, even the people who aren't directly affected by these nuisance odors, are they starting to wake up and kind of smell the coffee, or rather, smell the hog waste? Um, you know, in their state and thinking wow, this isn't so cool to be essentially the toxic waste dump of the United States. Um, Rick, what do you think the, the sort of local population is feeling at this point about how, uh, you know, how these various industries, and it's not just, you know, animal ag, it's, it's coal, it's energy plants, it's uh, chemical plants. Um, is the state starting to wake up about this or no? Yes, I think I think they're fully awake, and I think what we have now in eastern North Carolina, or in the state of North Carolina, is the perfect storm. Yeah, we have all of this information uh, in the public forum about Hurricane Florence and terrible damage it did to the rivers of eastern North Carolina and communities. Yeah, um, but uh, we also have these lawsuits, which are very much similar to the tobacco industry suits of several years ago that, yes. that really put a uh, truthful face on what was going on with that industry. So in eastern North Carolina, in the state of North Carolina, um, I think the industry's in a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. but they have an awful lot of money, yeah. and they fight to protect the system that they have, which is polluting in massive ways the waterways, the air, and communities of eastern North Carolina. How much How much are people's drinking water, uh, how much has it been affected, say, over the last 10 years uh, as these, as these uh, big industrial farms have ramped up in size? Do you feel like that 
you know, cities like Wilmington, for example, uh, recently had a big water scare, I guess about a year ago, right? When they, when they said, oh, all of those PFOAs from Teflon manufacturing or the Gen X uh, chemical uh, byproduct from Teflon manufacturing, oops, that's in the water supply in Wilmington. I, you know, I'm assuming that that's only one of multiple components of um, toxic substances in that, in the Cape Fear River. So, you know, are people able to drink their water? Are they able to bathe in it? What's what's the story there as a, as a resident? Well, I, if, I don't live in Wilmington, but if I no. did, I would not be drinking the water in Wilmington, but right. that's how I feel about it personally. Uh, the Gen X discharges of chemicals is a serious problem. Many of the hogs in eastern North Carolina and poultry are located on the Cape Fear. Yeah. Um, then we have the Sutton... Uh, coal ash uh, discharge that has recently occurred where the floodwaters went across a a uh, coal ash uh, site that uh, stored a lot of coal ash and we have photographs and video of that coal ash which is highly mm-hmm. toxic yeah. flowing down the lower Cape Fear River wow. so uh, the Cape Fear is in a lot of trouble the Northeast Cape Fear is in a lot of trouble the mm-hmm. Noose River is in a lot of trouble uh, I think all of our rivers in North Carolina are really suffering badly. Yes, I mean, but but what's interesting, and I want to pull back a little bit and look at the more of a national um, sort of emergency about water quality. Um, Rick, you probably are keeping, because you're in the Waterkeeper Alliance, I mean, where, where else are we seeing sort of similar profiles to what you are experiencing in North Carolina? Water's in trouble all over the planet. Yeah. Uh, water keepers are located all over the globe in China, Russia, Australia, um, Iraq. I mean, we have water keeper programs wherever we have major waterways. And the reports coming from all of those river keepers and water keepers is, is very similar about pollution, different kinds of pollution. Right. But... I believe we're in a lot of trouble, and our most important resource that we have is water, water and air. Yes. Uh, and and they're in trouble everywhere. Global warming, I mean, you, there's no end to the problems that we're facing here. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. That's why I'm doing a whole series on water quality. <laughs> because people tend to think of this as like, oh, not in my backyard. It's not. It's a NIMBY problem. Uh, it's, it's flint seems to be the only thing that rings anybody's bells. And yet... You know, as I sort of watch the agricultural news and and see, you know, the dead zone is expanding in the Gulf of Mexico. The the water, you know, water quality issues in Des Moines, Iowa, were a, a big story uh, for me that I covered for several years, and that are still an ongoing issue. I mean, it's just you know, the city of Toledo can't drink their own water in the summer because Lake Erie is so polluted. The, you know, blue green algae and the whole coast of Florida. I mean, it's just, you know, I want. I want us to wake up to start seeing that this is something that is not just, you know, happening in the random state or the random city, but it is really a compelling problem that all citizens need to be paying attention to. So let's let's wrap this up and and, and let me just ask you one more question, um, and you can both respond to this. Like, what do you see um, the legislature in North Carolina doing uh, about this, if anything, um, in terms of? preparing in advance for more of these storms, which are clearly going to become more serious. Well, this is Rick. Rick, you, you, you look first. at the yeah, Rick, local you go first. situation more than I do. Yeah. 
Charles, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Have well, in North Carolina, the General Assembly is an absolute zero when it comes to protecting the waterways in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hog industry has such influence in our General Assembly that they simply pass any law that the industry wants. Yeah. So getting help from the General Assembly is a non-starter. We do have a very good governor, Governor Cooper. Uh, he follows a, a previous governor in North Carolina who was a true friend of the industry. Right. And, Pat and McCrory? His, yeah, that's him. Boy, what a, what a polluter he was. But we got a good governor now. But what help do I expect from government? Almost none. And the truth is that I think we're in a race against Mother Nature. You know, we pass all these laws in North Carolina that say it's okay to put lagoons and spray fields in the floodplain. Mm-hmm. And we pass laws that excuse pollution in here and there and every other way. Mm. But Mother Nature has her own set of laws, which are superior to anything that we can pass in a General Assembly. <laughs> and when you break Mother Nature's laws, Mother Nature will respond with a consequence if you continue to do it. Yes. And I think we're seeing that all over the globe right now. Yeah. And it's getting worse by each month, by each year. And if we don't do something to stem the tide, so to speak, we're going to pay a price that we cannot afford. I, I'm completely with you on that. And Charles, um, I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you one final question um, that mm-hmm. relates to sort of the beginning of my, my first question to you, which was, yeah. do you think the media, you know, as somebody who participates in journalism outside of a podcasting mm-hmm. platform... <laughs> Do you think your colleagues are going to start reporting, especially down there, going to start reporting more about these consequences of climate change or more about the personal impacts on the agricultural community? I mean, I know that agriculture is not your beat generally, but do you, I mean, I I just, I see a lack of um, urgency uh, in reporting on, on the issues that you covered so uh, admirably in these four small stories at the New Yorker. Yeah, well, I mean, the subject has now been breached, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, assuming that others like you have, have read, you know, my stories, some of the other good ones that Rick has contributed to and yeah. his editorial in the Washington Post, that there's some momentum here. Maybe maybe we're at a tipping point journalistically. I don't have a whole lot of um, empirical evidence of that. But <laughs> personally, I was very disturbed by what I learned and what I reported. And I have to think that other, you know, sane people who are worried about our environment and our food system are also going to continue to, to, to want to learn more and report more and, and get serious about it. Yeah. I sure hope you're right. Guys, yeah. thank you so much for uh, participating with me today. And um, Charles, I'll be keeping tabs on your stories. Stay in okay, touch. thank you. And thank you so much for doing that work. And Rick, thank you so much for doing your work. I want you. To, oh, I wanted you to get, take just one minute to talk about Pure Farms, Pure Waters, because I want people to know about that program. So can you describe quickly what that is? Yes, the Pure Farms, Pure Water campaign has been uh, in here in North Carolina since uh, the year 2001. It was the first campaign that was undertaken by the Waterkeeper Alliance when uh, it formed as the umbrella group for all river keepers and water keepers throughout the planet. Uh, it has been very, very successful. Uh, it has helped expose all of the problems that are related to the pollution of these industries, these animal uh, industries. 
and uh, we will continue to do so. There are some 13 water keepers in North Carolina posted on the rivers. Uh, they uh, are active in documenting the pollution of this industry, and they will continue to do so. I'm very proud of, of the effort that we have here. Oh, you should be. And those maps, again, I think people should take a look at those maps because that just that whole project just blew my mind. I thought it was so great. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, gentlemen. Thanks so much to my sponsor, the wonderful Hearst Ranch. I adore the sound of Brian Kenny's voice. It's always my favorite thing when I come into the studio. Um, and thanks to my engineer. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks an awful lot for listening. Bye-bye. For thanks now. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.